Testing. Oh, that's loud. Hello. Good morning. Uh, my name's Darren. I'm going to pray for us as we open God's Word this morning in Titus. Father God, we thank you so much already for the time we've spent together worshipping you, hearing of exciting news from Poland with Charlie. Um, we just pray now you would guide us, you'd challenge us, you would encourage us, you would um, even rebuke us where needed through your Word, empowered by your Spirit. So help me as I uh, open the text this morning. In Jesus' name, Amen. All right, so you've noticed we're in a new text today. Um, we're in Titus, and um, so it's my job to introduce that to you. Firstly, I want to tell you that the working title for today's talk slash message slash sermon is uh, Planning for Succession, or Putting the Success in Succession. I'm not sure which is better. I googled, those words are spelt the same, so you can do that. So, planning for succession. I want you, firstly, you're going to daydream at some point in this sermon, so I want you to get it out of the way now, under my direction. So, I want you to think about, have you ever thought about starting a venture of your own? Uh, maybe it's a small business, maybe it's a not-for-profit, whatever it is, think about it in your head. Maybe close your eyes if you have to, we'll prompt you if we hear snores, that's okay. You've been doing it for a little while now you've actually been quite successful and you've got your own space and you're looking around your own space, what's on your walls there? What's your setup? What equipment have you got? In my space, my feet are up on the desk because I like to do that. Um, importantly, you've moved beyond the startup phase, so you've spent a lot of sweat and tears on your project, but it's not just you anymore. So close your eyes or think in your head again, who are you surrounded by? What type of people are around you? in your venture. But now, just a twist in the plot, you've only got five years, years, five years left in this venture, you know that. And you, I don't know what your reason is, um, but you've only got five years left. What do you need to do to make sure that your vision for your venture continues forward once you're no longer there? What do you need to do? Well, this is exactly the question that is on Paul's mind in our text from Titus. Because he realises, like hopefully you will realise, you need someone else to carry your vision and your plan forward, otherwise what you have started will die. Because at the moment in your venture, you hold all the good stuff, you hold the passion and the knowledge, you hold the values of the organisation, but it can't stay with you, it has to be passed on. And this is Paul's concern. Paul is at the end of his uh, ministry, he's in the later years of his um, apostolic career, if you want to call it that. And Paul is now concerned about, let's make sure that this work of Jesus continues. Let's be faithful with the message that we've been entrusted. And so he writes some letters to some young men, and they are Timothy and Titus. And those books are right next to each other. If you've got your Bible open, you might, like me, have a letter to Timothy right next to it. These are what we call the pastoral epistles, the pastoral letters. So there's two written to Timothy, one written to Titus. This is Paul planning for succession. Um, and in here we have instructions about what it might look like so that Paul's passion and vision for what Jesus is doing in the world would go forward. And that seems to have worked okay because we're here today, aren't we? 2,000 odd years later. Uh, imagine if your venture lasted 2,000 years later, what would it look like? Who knows? 
But this is Paul's concern, it's why he writes these letters. And we need to know who Paul is, maybe you don't know, maybe you need a refresher. But in the first part of the text, we see Paul introduces himself to Titus um, in this ancient letter we're reading along together with. And Paul says he is an apostle, um, he's a, um, one of those close ones to Jesus, entrusted with the message. And it's interesting that he sees his goal and his role to further the faith of God's elect, God's people. And he does that through the, their knowledge of the truth, that it might lead to godliness. And when you survey all of Paul's letters, whether it's Romans and letters to the Corinthians, there's three things that keep popping out um, when Paul writes. He always introduces himself um, as Paul, that's what you do, right? And then secondly, he would introduce himself often as a servant. So Paul um, views himself as a servant, and this is seen in Titus here. His role is to assist and enable and encourage and equip others. That's his life's work. The other thing that he calls himself is an apostle, and usually, oftentimes, not here, but oftentimes it's a phrase he uses, by the will of God. So Paul says, it's not just me that's, you know, it's not just a venture where I had a hobby and I came up with a religion. I've been chosen by God to do this task. And in other areas he shows, I've actually been affirmed by others, um, other apostles, that I'm legit, I'm authentic, I have this um, authoritative role. And so Paul is a servant, he's by the will of God, and then often you'll see that in his purpose, he's all about others. So that's how Paul introduces himself here. He's a, an apostle, a servant of God, and he's there to equip, to make sure that God's work goes forward, so that the seeds that are planted in people's lives might flourish and spring forth into a real gospel, Jesus-centered life, which will bear much fruit. And um, it's interesting to note, he's got great confidence in this. There's a hope, um, it's the hope that God's doing a work, it's the hope that brings eternal life, um, it's the hope that God has promised before the end of time. So Paul knows his spot in this work. Paul knows, I'm continuing God's work. It's no mistake that Paul was an expert in the Old Testament and the law, because they understood this is a continuation of God's plan. So Paul was bridging that gap to make sure the next group of people to take on this journey would understand what they're taking on. So that's what um, he's writing to Titus about. And he calls him my true son in the common faith, and he wants him to have grace and peace from God. What we discover is, um, from reading verse 5, is that Titus is probably a little ways away from Paul, He's, that's, hence the letter. Um, he says that, I've left you in Crete. Um, I'm a bit nervous about saying this fact because there's some p Greek people in the room and they'll, they'll probably call out if I'm wrong. That's okay, we'll all learn together. But I believe Crete is the largest of the Greek islands, so I'll just wait for any heckling. No, so there you go. Um, and we see Titus is in Crete and he says, I've left you behind in verse 5 that you might put into order what was left unfinished and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. So there's a mission in this letter. Immediately, we get into the second sentence. That first one's actually one sentence. Um, Paul loves a run-on sentence. So in the second sentence, we get right to it. There's a mission here. I've left you in Crete, not to be sunbaking, not to be yachting around the islands. I've left you there that you might put in order what was left unfinished. So it's likely this is after Paul's third missionary journey um, and he's left um, Titus behind and there's been some fruit and some conversions and Paul says now it's time to put that into order so that it might be a succession 
there might be fruit that lasts. And it's worth pausing for a minute there because I think sometimes we maybe read the book of Acts and we think, um, oh, we'd love a bit of that. And um, I think Tim Chester in his book, uh, Titus for You, he calls it a breathless vibrancy. And we all love breathless vibrancy. It's like young romance. We just want to be authentic and in the moment and unstructured maybe. Um, and so we, we read this put in order. Oh, is this going to be more of a boring letter? Is this going to be a bit dry and dull? Um, that's not the case at all because in Acts 6 we see there is order being implemented straight away with deacons serving so that the gospel can go forward. There's order happening and order is good order when it's there to serve the function of what's happening. And so when it allows people to flourish and the good news of Jesus to go forward, that is exactly the order you need. So it's not order versus vibrancy, it's order so that you can be more vibrant. And so if your order... Um, prohibits and, and stymies your vibrancy, then you need to rethink your order. But Paul says, you've got to put it in order here. We've got to get this rolling along. The way we're going to do that, just like your little venture that you thought of, you're going to need the next generation of leaders to take that forward. And Paul calls them elders. And this is not a small task. You'll see in the text that this is a big task for Titus because there are um, people in every town. He says, do this in multiple towns. So this is a big project. You know, this is similar to moving to Poland in the pandemic. You've got a, a large task in front of you and um, you've, got to, you've got to be orderly about it. That's water, by the way. I, I won't get more excited as I go, I promise. I'm at peak caffeine already. So he says you've got to appoint elders and then he goes into the qualifications for what these leaders look like. Because just like in your small venture when you start, if you don't carry forward... Um, the qualities that you need to run that venture or organisation, then it falls over, it fails, um, it suffers and it will produce poor results or even really malignant results. And so he goes into list um, in verse 6 to 8, I think it is there, yes, no, 9, 6 to 9, he lists what the leaders must look like, the elders must look like. And you can think about it in three areas to qualify because maybe this will help you if you're really in the middle of your a current venture. Maybe this will actually help you um, elsewhere other than church leadership. Three areas to qualify as a leader. First one is personal and family life. You see that in verse 6. The second one is character. That's in verses 7 and 8. And the third one is someone who has a grasp of God's words that they might teach, encourage and refute um, those around them. So those are the three um, areas that Paul specifies are required. Um, so in this case, we're going to read uh, the text there, verse 6, an elder must be blameless, faithful to his wife, a man whose children believe and are not open to the charge of being wild and disobedient. That is one of the reasons I'm not an elder here. No, that's just kidding. Can't blame your kids for everything. So an elder must be blameless, faithful to his wife, a man whose children believe. And... Um, so it's about personal life, it's about integrity, um, and it's very important. But I'm just going to pause for a moment, because some of you have already noticed, uh, you know, this person is faithful to his wife, he's a man whose children believe and are not open to the charge of being wild and disobedient, and you're thinking, man, there's a lot of, a lot of male pronouns going on there, what's going on? I'm not sure I'm, I'm happy with that. And so, um, you know... You, you might have questions. You might think, well, it's just, 
is just as how it was in this society, and so the men were being requested to be the leaders. Um, and that's so Paul just leans on that structure. Um, does, it, does it mean it could apply to anyone? Um, and I think these are all good questions. My strategy this morning is to spend about as much time in this part of the text as it is represented in the text, and I think it's probably less than 5%. So I'm going to give you a few just things to ponder, because I don't want to push your question aside. I just want to give you more questions to overcomplicate it for you in your mind. That's how my brain works. And so you can add to those questions as well. Is it cultural? You could ask, what about uh, Romans 16, 7? Is, is Junius there? That seems to be a female. Is she, is she one of the apostles? There's a reference there to her being either among the apostles or like highly regarded by the apostles. How should we interpret that? Oh, gee, that's hard because that really could change things. And then you could go to 1 Timothy 2, 12, and you could think about, I don't permit a, a woman to teach. Is Paul saying that's about authority that a woman can never assume, or is it about the usurping of authority in place? How do we, how do we deal with that Greek word authentine there? I'm probably saying it wrong, but what do we do with that word? There's debate around that. Um, and, you know, we start to untangle this web of this whole theology, which we don't have time for this morning. But I do want to spend enough time, I promise you that after the service, I'll spend as long as it takes to help you sort this out. I will walk through this whole building with you to find Luke. And then start that conversation for you, and then I'm going to get a coffee, okay? But here at City Rich Marion, in brief, we do think um, there are differences in gender roles, in short, and that, um, so the eldership is a position um, for men in the church, and uh, I think when it happens well, then everyone's happy, when it happens badly, then everyone's complaining. Um, a bit like when the Bible talks about roles for husbands and wives, and um, sometimes we teach a lot of the time about wives sort of respect and submit to husbands and we forget to teach probably the real meat of the passage which is about husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church and lay your body down for her. That's not really the image of the man on the couch with his feet up and the wife getting the slippers, in my mind anyway. So all that to say, yes it is the elephant in the room, Paul is um, calling for men here that might lead um, and he's faithful to his wife. The, the text is really saying here, this person is a one-woman man. Um, that's kind of a very literal interpretation of what's happening there. Um, it's been translated as faithful to his wife. And so, just to confuse you further, you say, does he have to be married? What about Paul in, I think it's 1 Corinthians, where he says, I would rather you were like me and single. See, Paul's just confusing sometimes. You have to hold these things together. Paul is saying, I think, the way you hold those things together, you can disagree with me, is he would prefer you were single and that you might serve, um, but you still, you still should have your personal life together. There should be no friendships that are sour. You should have a Christian sexual ethic, which is what this is talking about, where you are, if you are single, you're um, abstaining from sexual relationships, um, your eyes are not wandering online or in real life. Those are the qualities of a good, good Christian leader. Um, and also his family is in order. The children believe and are not open to the charge of being wild. So that's the first thing. The second is character. Um, and there's a good word here that's really important in, in verse 7. It's this idea that the leaders are the stewards um, of God. This idea that um, they're 
carrying forward. They're entrusted with something very precious. Um, so it is a position of great responsibility. And then, so it says, since an overseer manages God's household, he must be blameless. That means not overbearing, not quick-tempered, not given to drunkenness, not violent, not pursuing dishonest gain. So the big category of the top for your great leaders is they need to be blameless, um, above reproach, or another great synonym. They need to be unsullied. I love that one. It's very old-fashioned. Um, so there's all these things, and some of them are quite obvious. You know, you don't, in your own workplace, you don't want a boss who's constantly drunk. You don't want a boss who's constantly flying off the handle and angry. Uh, that makes sense. Not quick-tempered, not violent. That'd be bad news, wouldn't it? But we do have leaders that um, at times make their way into positions of authority and these things are bubbling away under the surface, aren't they? You they, they? It's coming out and it's not good, it's toxic. So Paul says, make sure that he doesn't have these bad qualities. This person does not have these bad qualities. And then he gives a rather in verse 8. He says, they've got to have these good things. It's not enough just to keep the lid on the saucepan of your seething anger and hatred and all those things as a bad person, you need to exhibit good things as well. There is a rather. What do you got to have if you're going to be a leader? You've got to be hospitable, one who loves what is good, you're self-controlled, you're upright, holy and disciplined. That's that second area, character. I just want to pick one thing out here that, that sort of struck me as I was reading. Um, hospitable. It's one of the measures of great leadership especially for a Christian. Um, in the Old Testament, there's this idea of the people of God, they were called to be hospitable because these people that are coming to you are travellers and sojourners, and you once were sojourners. So there's this theme that goes through the Old Testament even about what hospitality looks like. And it's very different to what we might imagine hospitality now, there's an industry called hospitality. It's not biblical hospitality. Biblical hospitality is when someone shows up in great need. They're kind of displaced. They're um, on the move. They're at an awkward time for you. Um, they're going to be costly to you as, as they stay there. That's the, one of the markers of Christian character, is that people are willing to give of themselves and their spaces so that you might welcome in those people you don't naturally get along with, that might stay too long, um, that encroach on your space and your food, and it's not in here, but your Netflix remote, whatever it is. But isn't that interesting, that there's a counter-cultural level of hospitality that Paul calls for in church leadership. Um, so I just wanted to highlight that, that just for a minute, just to say that of all the things there, I think that's really interesting. That certainly challenges me. That's why I highlight it. We can be protective of our spaces at home in busy lives, but godly people give up their spaces. They are hospitable, they are welcoming, even when it costs them. And I think this is a little picture of um, uh, what God's done for us. Because God has um, done all the work to welcome us back into relationship with him, hasn't he? And he's done that through um, Jesus coming to earth for us. That's pretty uncomfortable when you're, a, when you're God and you become confined to human space and human suffering. And you do all the work 
to reconnect people that have wronged you. That's pretty hospitable. And then you welcome them with open arms and want to eat and drink with them, as he says in Revelation. I'm knocking at the door that I might come in and, and eat with you. So I think it's a beautiful picture too. Hospitality is a great picture of what God's done for us. It's a beautiful picture of the gospel. So the third thing is that this elder, not just good personal and family life, not just good character, they must be skilled with the teaching of God. And the reason for that is um, they need to hold it firmly. Um, That way they can encourage others when they're on the right track. They can also refute those who oppose it. Uh, It's a very important role of leadership. Much like in your, your visioning, your space and your venture in your head, you don't want someone coming in who's not an expert in your area, right, in your topic, in your industry. You need to be able to train them and you need to bring someone else who can then bring those same levels of knowledge to steer what's going to happen. You don't want someone coming in and making it up when you're building a house, if your venture is a, um, a building company, You don't want them making that up as they go. They need steering, they need coaching, they need guidance, they need refuting when they say, no, I'm doing it my way, my way's pretty good, it's never been done before. But there'd be great and catastrophic results if they didn't have the coaching and the steering. Um, I'll give you a little uh, story, an Australian story, it's historic in as much as I recount it accurately. a case of leadership under test, because leadership probably looks um, easy when you first have an idea of your head. I think business people talk about when you first have an idea, there's sort of this curve and you start at the very top of the graph and that's sort of um, ignorant optimism, I think they call it. And then you start your venture and it's a bit harder than you thought. I often leave the graph fairly early on in this curve. People around me can attest this. Because after that, you enter in like the pessimism of knowledge. So you realise how hard it is that the thing you started was not what you thought. Uh, You saw someone else do it and it looked easy and you didn't realise they'd spent all this time and this experience doing uh, hard work to go through the valley of pessimism and finally come out the valley into a new light of competence. Um, And so I just want to illustrate this with leadership under test. It's easy at the start, it's not easy in the middle where you don't know what you're doing, that's where you're tested under pressure. And I want to tell you a bit about a story you probably already know about, it's a, um, a, a real iconic Australian story. It's the, uh, Australia's one of the most costly ventures um, in our history, it is the travel expedition from Melbourne right to the top of Australia, Gulf of Carpentaria, does anyone know who did that? or who tried with mixed results. Stuart was the South Australian, I think, and we should be very proud of him. This was a Victorian expedition, um, and it was Burke and Wills, okay? So, the, um, it was in 1860, around that time, and they were keen to find a path for an overland telegraph route. And um, they had the gold fields there in Victoria, so they were willing to fund some expensive projects. And the Victorian government said, we're going to fund this venture because we want Victoria to be one of the most elite states. So already you're thinking, this this may not end well. And you're right. Um, So then they pick um, uh, Burke. um, I think it's Robert O'Hara Burke. They pick Burke to be the leader of the expedition. 
Sounds good. He actually has no experience surveying or navigating. So, so far we're doing great, right? But he does find wheels, who does have some experience, so it's not all bad news. Uh, then they set out in August, right? 20,000 people, very excited for this venture. Biggest group of camels we've ever assembled in Australia to go on this venture from Melbourne all the way up to the top of Queensland in the Gulf of Carpentaria. And um, so everyone's excited, everyone's at the top of the curve of optimism, aren't they? We don't really know what we're getting into, but this is sensational. I reckon it's probably, I've never done it, but I reckon it's a bit like church planting. You're probably really excited, and you have no idea what's coming next. And so they set out with this great fanfare with their camels and their possessions and everything. They get up towards Broken Hill, about a third of the way up, and Burke decides, mate, all this gear we've got slowing us down. So he leaves most of the gear there with a guy, and he says, you catch us up soon. It's a very specific instruction. Catch us up soon, because we're going to need some supplies, but it's slowing us down. So the party splits off. They keep going further up, and then they stop in, um, I can't remember it is now, but it's in the Queensland. It's Cooper Creek. And uh, they stop there, and they split the party yet again. And um, they're going to push further again. So it's about the second third. And they leave another guy there with supplies. Uh, so they're leaving supplies behind at every step and dividing the party. And then they push further towards the top, and I think it's about four of them at that stage left. And they make it right to the top, and they can hear the beach, but they never saw the beach because it's mangrove swamps for a long way out there. So they're in now in the deep in the valley of pessimism. We've left most of our supplies behind. We're starving hungry. There's only a few of us left, and um, we now can't even see the beach we came to see because we didn't realise there were mangroves that would prevent us. Um, so what happens is they're going to go back down towards the depot they'd, they'd set up at Cooper Creek. And one guy there, he's waited three months, I think it is, and he's had this brilliant idea. There's a tree, famous tree now, called the dig tree. So he digs a hole somewhere, and puts the supplies in, and then he carves into the tree where to dig so that no one would find it accidentally. And um, the party returns back to the dig tree, and they do actually find where the supplies are. And they, they, um, they dig it up, um, and they replenish a little bit. And then they think, oh, okay, we better make sure um, we leave a message for the other party, I think it was. But anyway, they cover the site so well that when the other group come back, they don't know they've been there. Um, so there's, there's the, it's a whole mess of communication. In the end, only one guy out of the party, not Burke, not Will, survive. Only one guy who sort of wanders off on his own is helped by the indigenous people of the area to survive. Uh, King is his last name. He's the only surviving guy from this expedition. I think out of 17 people, he's the only sole survivor. And um, so the tragic story of how leadership can be tested and there can be great cost when leadership is tested. And um, they were also, I think, our first state funeral for Burke and Will. So it was great mourning. They went and retrieved the bodies, reburied them in Melbourne. And ironically enough, we kind of accomplished more by looking for Burke and Wills to get them back. We found more pastoral land and better routes looking for them than we did on the Burke and Wills trip. So I'm not having a go at them. It's a tough time and they were very brave. But if you've got leaders that don't know how to do what they're supposed to do and then they make some weird decisions about who to take with them and who to leave behind, um, tragedy results. And that's the same here because at the end of this... Um, uh, text here, you've got a section on um, 
what happens if you don't do good leadership. In verse 10, for there are many rebellious people full of meaningless talk and deception. So the search for leadership needs to be cautious and um, methodical and thorough because there are many that might put their hand up who are going to be a bit useless and, or worse, they're going to have false motives because it says further on, um, they're, they're actually going to teach for the sake of dishonest gain. They actually want to extract money and fame out of, out of the group of Christians around. So you've got to find one among the crowd who stands up, who has character, whose personal life is in order, who can handle and teach the true apostles' teaching about who Jesus is and how we're reconciled to God. And Paul writes, you've got this challenge here, Titus. You're in Crete and the culture around you is, uh, they sort of self-identify through their philosophers as people who are dishonest and evil and, um, you know, uncaring. Uh, when he quotes them, he's like, they're always liars, they're evil brutes, they're lazy gluttons. So this is culture that you're going to have to fight. Leadership's going to be tested. You can't just stay at the top of the curve of optimism. There's going to be tests. You need people with character. You need people who know what they're doing. People that will pay no attention to Jewish myths or human com commands. Um, watch out for those. So it's a real challenge to getting good leaders in any organisation, but especially um, the church where we need... Um, I think the reason for it is we're kind of trying to do so much of our life together. It's got to be all encompassing um, integrity because we're opening up not just our nine to five, but we, we're opening up hopefully more and more as our trust grows into our personal life and our, our financial life and all those things. And, and we're discussing it openly and asking for input. So if you have the wrong person in those positions, bad things will happen because they're going to steer you for their own gain. So we need quality people. We need the one among the crowd. But the last thing I want to leave you with today is a personal challenge, um, which is aimed at um, these false people. But I think it's good for us, because don't forget the whole point of what Paul's setting in place here is, is going to be discovered in chapter 2, that together, from the leadership on down, we're going to do the Christian life together so that it might show the goodness of Jesus. That's what it's going to be all about. So it's not just people telling you what to do who can't do it, it's these people that are authentic and do it themselves and they're vulnerable and they're honest and they're open, but they're also skilled and equipped. Um, and there's a challenge for us in this because we're all doing this together. That's what we're going to find out. The older teach the younger, older women teach the young women, older men teach the young men, um, and encourage them in all these things. We're going to get into it. But I think in verse 16, it just jumps out that these people that should never be allowed in positions of influence, um, they claim to know God, it says in verse 16, but by their actions, they deny them. So the true test and the challenge for us this morning is, are we more talk than action? That's the test of character. That's the test of Christian maturity. Is there evidence by what you do not just what you say. And I think that can be a challenge for all of us because like our talk about um, the leadership roles and what they're all about, we can be experts in, in the Greek, like authentine, like me saying it probably wrong. I always think we get so, in, it's kind of fun, we want to debate and 
that's not the point of what's happening here. The point is that we might, just like 1 Corinthians, build each other up in love, that the gospel might impact us and affect the culture around us. So the question and the challenge I want to leave us with, how much uh, talk can you do, how great are you a debate versus how much of that do you actually implement in really practical ways that live out like chapter 2 is going to teach us what the gospel looks like in real life so that it might impact our families, it might impact our workmates, it might impact the community of Marion for the sake of the gospel, that we might have flourishing. That's a hard question to ask ourselves, isn't it? Um, But I want you to leave that with you. How much do I know versus how much do I do? I think sometimes we come to church and think, I just need to know more, teach me some more stuff. Well, I probably should have meant to spent more time this morning telling myself and you, just do more of the stuff you already know. That's the challenge for us this morning. But the good news is, don't forget in amongst all that, as we make our bumbling mistakes, and as we follow people who do make mistakes, hopefully humbly and acknowledge those, jump back to verse 2. We're doing this in the plan of God. This is God's plan to restore people to himself. Okay, so don't overly beat yourself up. It's forgiveness with God. But we, want to, we do want to test ourselves to make sure are our leaders more action than talk? And are we following our leaders in that? It's not enough to, to sit back and then just critique the leaders and say, well, he's only, you know, he's 60% talk and only 40% action and never look at our own lives. We've got to inspect ourselves because together when the community flourishes, that's when the good news of Jesus really goes out, really looks different uh, for people around us. And that's our prayer here at City Reach Marion, that we might be different, talk different, and have an impact on the people around us. So let's pray to that end, and then I'm going to lead us in a time of offering. Father, we just thank you for the Apostle Paul and his prolific writing. Uh, we thank you um, just in the way he's so practical but full of great doctrine about who you are and what we should do. We ask this morning that we would get better, um, whether we're in leadership, whether we're middle-aged, whether we're young, that we would all together get better at being more than just talkers, great theologians. We'd be great doers of your word this morning. We ask for your help in it. Your spirit can empower us in doing that. We need it. We ask as this happens that we wouldn't be greedy for gain, Um, we'd learn to be generous with each other in our hospitality, um, with our finances, not because we're compelled, but because we give back out of love to you. Um, We pray that we'd be more like where Paul speaks about in Romans, that we'd be a living sacrifice, and and we wouldn't just open our wallets in an offering time as a tokenistic means of affirming our love for you, but it'd be a whole area. It might mean maybe opening our homes or spending more time and discipling one another. Um, So we need your help in this area. But we do want to give back now in a time of offering. We want to give back to you, to give you thanks and praise, to say you are in control. We're part of your small plan. Sorry, your great plan. We play a small part in it. Father, thank you for inviting us into your work. Thank you for being hospitable to us through Jesus and welcoming us in. Uh, We ask that the money that comes in this week and every week will be used wisely, not for 
short-term gain, but for great gospel impact here in Marion and even in places abroad like Poland that in partnership with us. We give you thanks for everything in Jesus' name. Amen. So I am just going to invite you now um, just